Welcome to episode 7 of Staging Shakespeare. I'm calling this episode Juliet's Balcony, which means I must be talking about possibly the most famous scene in all of Shakespeare, from Romeo and Juliet. Though maybe Hamlet holding Yorick's skull as a claim to that title as well. It's a scene that is so famous that you could probably stop more or less anyone in the street and ask them about it, and they'll be able to tell you something. So, let's get started on considering how the staging of this particular scene is actually more than just an opportunity for the actor playing Romeo to impress the audience with his ability to shin up a drainpipe. If you look online at the official tourism site of the city of Verona, one of the top suggestions is In Juliet's Footsteps. Click on this link and it will take you to a three-kilometre walk around the city, lasting about three hours, starting off at Casa di Giulietta. Juliet's house is a medieval dwelling, restored by the city in the 1930s, dating back to the 13th century, and for a long time the property of the Capello family, whose name, of course, conveniently recalls that of Juliet's family, the Capulets. High up on a wall of an interior courtyard is a balcony. And if you can fight your way through the tourists taking photos of it and selfies of themselves in front of the statue of Juliet at ground level, you may be surprised to learn that the balcony is a later addition to the house. A very much later addition. In fact, it was added around 1940, when at the request of Mussolini's son-in-law, the Italian historian and director of Verona's Civic Museum, Antonio Avena, collaborated with MGM Studios in Hollywood to provide the balcony. He did this by attaching a sarcophagus to the wall. Notwithstanding this backstory, the courtyard below the balcony in the Casa di Giulietta is always thronged with tourists and has no doubt made its money back many times over. So, Juliet's balcony in the Casa de Giulietta in Verona is nothing more than a deception. But I suppose we always knew that, and we're prepared to play along with it. I've never been to Verona myself, but I imagine that if I did go there, I probably would find time to visit Juliet's house and see the balcony. I might even take a photo of it, or a selfie of me with the balcony in the background. But although the balcony at the Casa di Giulietta is nothing more than a tourist trap, the more interesting question is, why do we believe that Juliet has a balcony at all? Because that's not at all evident from the play. The scene in question is Act 2, Scene 2 of the play and it begins with Romeo's dismissal of Mercutio's taunts, which closed the previous scene. He jests at scars that never felt a wound, says Romeo. And then moments later, he has one of the most famous lines in any play by any writer from the Greeks to the present day. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks. And then he adds, It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Now, of course, Shakespeare's plays are notoriously lacking in stage directions. 
In fact, the first folio of Shakespeare's complete works doesn't even divide Romeo and Juliet into acts and scenes, let alone provide us with a stage direction such as Enter Juliet Above or Enter Juliet Onto Her Balcony. All we have are the words of Romeo to guide us. And they tell us that he can see Juliet at a window. That's all. And where is the window? Well, at first we can't be sure from what Romeo says. He tells us that Juliet is leaning her hand upon her cheek, which suggests something like a window sill is to be imagined. Later, though, he gives us a very important clue. This is what he says. She speaks. Oh, speak again, bright angel, for thou art as glorious to this night, being o'er my head, as is a winged messenger of heaven, unto the white upturned wondering eyes of mortals that fall back to gaze on him when he bestrides the lazy, puffing clouds and sails upon the bosom of the air. There you have it. The window at which Juliet appears is over Romeo's head, and the image that he uses to describe her more poetically, that of the winged messenger of heaven, reinforces this by suggesting that it's necessary to upturn our wandering eyes to the skies to see her. All in all, then, it's clear that Juliet is above Romeo in the staging of this scene, but not necessarily on a balcony. But we want a balcony, don't we? Well, we have done for a very long time. I guess we all have a fairly clear idea in our minds of what an Elizabethan playhouse looked like. We can visualise a main performance area jutting out into the yard with audience able to stand very close to its edge on three sides. We can see a back wall with two doors in it, one left, one right, in the centre of the back wall there's a curtained-off inner stage, which might be also used in some ways. And above these is a gallery, mostly used by musicians, but also at times for the action of the play. This must be where Cleopatra and her women stand at the end of Antony and Cleopatra, when the body of Antony is drawn up to her. The first folio actually has the stage direction They heave Antony aloft to Cleopatra. But no such stage direction exists in Romeo and Juliet, though we can surely imagine only one way of staging the scene, with Romeo on the main stage and Juliet on the upper gallery. But this does not actually imply a balcony as such. And the truth of the matter is this, Shakespeare didn't even know what a balcony was. Balconies just didn't exist in England at that time, and the very first time that the word balcony is used, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is in 1618, two years after Shakespeare died, and 20 years after the play was first performed. So where did the balcony come from? It was, in fact, a creation of the 18th century, 
and from that period onwards it became de rigueur. And the scene in question gradually became known as the balcony scene. In fact, if you go to the Royal Shakespeare Company's own website and look at some of the pages dedicated to Romeo and Juliet as a text for study in schools, you'll find the phrase the balcony scene being used. So it's no wonder that more or less everyone thinks of it in that way. So my question is, could you stage the scene without a balcony? Would that just be perverse? And how would an audience respond to such a decision, I wonder? I must admit that I haven't seen many performances of Romeo and Juliet on stage. I think I've probably seen the play only two or three times. But one of those was Ron Daniels' 1980 production for the Royal Shakespeare Company, which I saw in Stratford. Romeo was played by Anton Lesser, and Judy Buxton was Juliet. The designer was Ralph Coltai. And it's Coltai's design that I want to focus on, because it was unusual in a number of respects, and particularly in terms of the so-called balcony scene. The set which the designer provided for this production consisted of several huge trapezoidal-shaped Italian plaster walls, all in splotched whites, yellows and browns. These large blocks of wall were hinged so that they could be positioned at a variety of angles to give the suggestion of narrow passageways for the street scenes or sun-drenched expanses of wall as a backdrop for scenes such as the one where Juliet is waiting for the nurse to return from seeing Romeo to arrange the lover's marriage. Personally, I loved the set, and I enjoyed the production as a whole too. What I liked about the set was the combination of simplicity and flexibility, allowing these walls to create a variety of locations simply by being repositioned in different configurations on the stage. It's a technique I've gone on to use myself, as it's a very neat approach when you're working with little money, as most teachers tend to be when staging productions in an educational context. However, I've recently come across a very interesting account of this production in Shakespeare Observed by Samuel Crowell, who was lucky enough to be an observer of the rehearsals which led up to these performances. It's clear from Crowell's account that in practice, owing to their size, these large hinged walls were difficult and dangerous to move and reposition. And because the permanent stage constructed for the season was sharply raked, the walls gave the actors the feeling that they were always about to topple over, a fear which must have added an unwelcome frisson to the performances from the performer's point of view. Anyway, on the night I saw the show, none of the walls fell over, and I was completely unaware of there being any difficulty with the set. What did strike me very forcefully was that when the balcony scene arrived, it arrived without a balcony. And that was a real shock.
If you search the internet for photos of this production, you'll inevitably find a photo by Donald Cooper which shows Juliet leaning over a peeling plaster wall and Romeo reaching up on tiptoe from ground level in order to touch her hand. It's a wonderful photo and it encapsulates perfectly the iconoclastic nature of the design which Coltai produced for Daniels. And it works! Because the key thing, at least as far as the dialogue that Shakespeare wrote is concerned, is that Juliet is far above Romeo, both literally and metaphorically. For me, that slab of dirty white wall worked better as a means of separating the two lovers than any balcony could do. It's an image which has stayed with me for 40 years. Now, I don't suppose the balcony scene is ever going to be renamed the window scene. That balcony has wormed its way into our collective consciousness to such an extent that it would need an earthquake to remove it. And I don't begrudge the tourists in Verona their moment of pleasure as they stand in the courtyard of the Casa Giulietta. But I do hope that what you take away from this podcast is a feeling that you should always be guided by Shakespeare's text itself and not by the accretions which have attached themselves to it over the years. If you do look at even the most famous scenes with an open mind, you may end up creating something completely fresh and original, which is nevertheless fully in keeping with what Shakespeare has written. Because, let's say it one more time, Shakespeare did not give Juliet a balcony. He gave her a window. Well, that's all for episode 7. Please do remember, you can always email me at podcaststagingshakespeare at gmail.com I hope you've enjoyed thinking about Juliet's Balcony and thanks for listening. Bye now.